In this podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing David Mayer, an Australian with two decades of experience rehydrating landscapes and replenishing groundwater. He studied and worked with Peter Andrews of Natural Sequence Farming and has worked with Aboriginal elders. In this interview, we talk about natural sequence farming and also about how water affects heat and climate. Let's uh, maybe just begin about some of your background and how you got into water. Well, I suppose I was always into water. I was always sort of more, but more in a different scene. I was into sailing boats and sort of I, I worked for the Maritime Museum in Sydney at, 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 uh, at one point. And then um, when my first child came along, I was, I was uh, really sort of uh, recognising that there was a need to get involved in... Uh, you know, back then I used to read a lot of David Suzuki's works and I knew the situation sort of uh, environmentally, climatically that these kids were going to inherit. So I thought, oh, well, I better stop being involved in jobs that are destroying forests and start getting involved in ones that are sort of regrowing them, I, I suppose. And, um, you know, it was, through a, it was through a fellow I knew in uh, Gosford that I eventually ended up meeting Peter Andrews, um, you know, I'd, I'd seen him on a uh, Australian Story program a couple of weeks prior to, and I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to meet that fellow one day. And then sure enough, within sort of two or three weeks, I'd actually sort of sat down and met him and started to have a conversation with him. But, um, you know, there was things on that show that were, were pretty fascinating, you know, aerial photographs, a helicopter flying across the top of the property and you're looking in, in, the, in the middle of a drought, you're looking in a green oasis in the middle of a drought. So there was something about what this person was doing that was interesting. You know. uh, so so this, was a, this was an Australian TV show about Peter Andrews, right? And they were showing his farm and it was an aerial view of the farm and it's, it's drought, right, in Australia. And yet he was managing to irrigate his land with by using by getting a lot of groundwater flowing is that correct yeah but you'd, you'd, you'd essentially call it a biomimicry um by by mimicking natural processes yeah that's what that's essentially what he's done right um, so yeah so he'd figured out a way to keep his farm hydrated even when neighboring farms weren't able to do that correct yeah so there's what Peter learned from Aboriginal people as a as a young boy is on his um, you know his father was a, a stockman and he had Aboriginal stockmen working on his property and as a as a child Aboriginal people said to him you know white fellows walk all over everything and see nothing and what he what he learned was how to read the old patterns in the landscape and he sent, essentially from those old patterns in the landscape landscape went about rebuilding eroded landscapes but replicating these same patterns so it was this these shapes in the landscape what am i trying to say here they're basically you can you can see where the old, all the old wetlands used to be and the old water flows when you can see those you can go in and put them back in and it reinstates a whole system in the process. They're kind of key areas that um, when, you re when you reinstate those areas, 
they're the they're the ones that govern mostly the flow of the water through the landscape. So they slow it right down, and and, and enable the a perched water table as well. They lift the water table up. Yeah. And had he at that point developed his whole system, natural sequence farming? Was he calling it natural sequence farming yet? At that time, yeah. And he'd been, and so, he was already teaching people this whole system, other farmers and things. Pretty early in the teaching days back then, mm -hmm. um, you know, it more or less came out of a research and development program where he was involved with a couple of big banks. But uh, this would have been uh, in the early nineties, I think, late eighties, early nineties. Um, so he was in a research and development. Uh, arrangement there's about five and a half million dollars went into um, studying what it is that he was doing so that it uh, could essentially be replicated on other land uh, the deal went sour and the banks ended up taking his property off him and he, he ended up becoming bankrupt so then uh, later on his son brought back the property off the banks but there was a lot of tension between him and his son over the years. Mm -hmm. A lot of, um, you know, you can imagine losing the farm to the bank and all of this research and development work that was done on the property. Um, it's, you know, the value of all of that work is um, incredible, you know. So what were some of the first things he taught you when you started? A... So what happened? Did he become your mentor or what was the relationship or you just kind of became friends or? Uh it, it was a, a difficult sort of how do you how do you sort of yes a friend a mentor um in some ways at times sort of maybe a little bit unhealthy sort of fatherly kind of figures and stuff but definitely a good a good um you know, he, he opened my head up to a different way of looking at things that's for, for sure and he'd be quick could be quite brutal at it times, you know, it, it, it encourage you to sort of see the interconnectedness of things. Uh, it's um, if you, if you try to reduce things down and see them separately or in isolation, he just wouldn't stand for it. And, you know, he would say things to me like, it's all about processes and function. It's all about processes and function. And I just wouldn't even understand what he was talking about. You know, I actually go home and Google what processes and functions meant and then realise it was a little bit like, you know, when my father tried to teach me maths, he was taught another way at school than the way that I was taught maths at school. And when I got home and needed help with my homework, he'd teach me another way. And I, we, couldn't, we couldn't communicate, right? So that was similar to what was going on with Peter. He was, he was already in another... You know, to try and see things that way it was difficult. Yeah. So, what did he mean by it was all processes in functions? Or, well, processes and functions come down to things like um, uh, levels of biodiversity in the ecosystem. So, it's the greatest amounts of diversity creates the healthiest ecosystem. So, that's one component of it. But the functionality really is about running temperature of the landscape. You know, that's what maintains the level of diversity within a spectrum of temperature, yeah? So if you see high fluctuations in temperature, that's where you see your declines in diversity 
rapidly. Mm. So functionality is about long-term water cycles. Mm. When you're seeing the dew return back, that's, you're recovering your daily losses, you see. So what would you uh, say were some of the main teachings of natural sequence farming? Uh, groundwater hydrology um, is a is a major like um, reading the landscape is a you've heard of geomorphology that's um, a little bit that's the big words big big fancy science word for understanding the old shapes in the landscape being able to read them Mm -hmm. yeah and if you delve in a bit closer we'll end up doing non-equilibrium stuff and energy dissipative structures yeah that's where that ends up leading to like mm -hmm. in terms of a in terms of how we're going to scientifically explain what it is that we're observing we need to use those principles and look through that lens to be able to describe it properly yeah mm -hmm. so yeah so okay so, so groundwater and geomorphology. Will you say a little bit about how his techniques, because he managed to get a lot more groundwater flowing. So what were the techniques he used? Some of this is, there, there are a couple of components. And another component is the, the landscape history component. If you'd like, so space and time, you, you know, you know that, you know how you heard of the concept space and time. Yeah. So what we'll be doing in moment, looking at the landscape, we're in this space, in this time, right? So we're reading a landscape, we're looking backwards in time right, to what the old landscape, how it used to be, but we can still in this time, we're looking back. And then we know that by the changes we take, like we're, we can see future time, we can predict it basically what the landscape will look like through intervention. Yeah, so space in time means that you're sort of looking backwards that's what that's quite it sounds all I know it sounds tricky and it's a conceptual sort of thing but it's it's actually when it comes down that's what you're sort of looking at the old landscape looking at where the energy used to dissipate yeah where the structures need to be where part of the ways you can tell where energy used to dissipate is where you get the deepest soil it sort of tapers back like this. Yeah, that's where that's where sediment fell out of suspension. Does that make sense? So when you In mean when you mean energy flood. dissipating, are you saying when the water slows down? Is that what you mean by uh, energy dissipating? Um. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. And so where it slows down, you're getting more of a buildup of, of good soil. Being, being, a, being a physicist, you've got a, a bit of a, an idea of energy dissipation, hey? Mm -hmm. like, so it's, there's, there's principles that, sort of, that support it. This is a, a bit of, it actually relates to the second law and entropy and, and whatnot, but it has to do with sort of slowing things down so that um, uh, the non-equilibrium the non component 
You know, so when you just have energy and matter, you've got the energy flow of the water and organic matters and materials in the water body and then plants building structures. So the non-equilibrium describes the structures that come about far from equilibrium. When, yeah. So even plants, like the leaf on a tree is an energy dissipative structure that occurs far from equilibrium. Mm -hmm. You get that? Yeah. Yeah. It's helpful if we can explore to some point um, what it is that, you know, your, your understanding of the principles, because that will help tease out some yeah. things. But that maybe I just, just, a, I'll just, throw just to begin, like, let's maybe just start with some simple examples of maybe just to give an idea of what natural sequence farming is, like how do they get the groundwater sure. going? How do they use a geomorphology? to well what are the just some maybe some more simple things rather than the abstract principles to begin with Let, let's start with that maybe the, so the for instance like the, i think he i, I, I apologize the, the history component is significant because unless we look at unless we look back at some of the history component some mm -hmm. of the things don't make sense either so yeah. in in, in Australia, we didn't really have, um, and it's happened a lot of continents as well, a lot of the destruction happened in the landscape very early when the Europeans arrived, right? The hard-footed animals went into areas, and we, we don't have the, we, we may not have scientific reports, but we have the early explorers' reports. These were the most respected people at the time that were, or other, there was other respected people that wrote reports about the observations that they were seeing when white people first arrived. Yeah. So the old landscapes were, de were described more as chains of ponds. Yeah. Our floodplains were chains of ponds, not um, floodplains as we understand or see them today, where floodplains are separated to a river. Yeah. They aren't, they only, the floodplains these days only receive a high flow event. I know I'm going off track a little bit, but when we look when we look back at the historic stuff, what we can see is that they they dredged rivers, they did things like gold mining, and they removed all the wetlands. And the, the historic records show us that when that we've actually removed over ninety six percent of Australia's wetlands systems in Australia, um, it was over seven hundred and fifty thousand in the Murray Darling system alone. And prior to their removal, they would measure the flow of water through them. These, this, is, this is attached to natural sequence farming. It's significant because what Peter does is reinstate those old ways, right, in the, land, in the landscape. With, with A lot of the things replicate wetlands that hold the water back in the landscape, what, what Peter's doing. So... Um, and with the change when of they, pond, you're saying, are you saying that in the past what happens was it was almost like there was a pond on a higher land and then the water would leak out of that pond to the next pond a little bit downhill and then, and then it would stay in that pond for a while and then leak down to the next pond. So that's, what, that's how the natural Australian landscape that, used to be. That's, that's right. Mm -hmm. It perched, perched water bodies on steps. Right. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, so, sorry, the, the, Australians, the Australian history component is significant because it, it helps us understand that the way that it used to look like isn't the way it looks like today. 
So in turn, it, help, it helps us believe more in this capacity to look back and, and see the old wetlands. Because you know, right. a lot of the, the, all those old shapes are still there, provided a machine been on there and pushed them out. You know? So, yeah, so in natural sequence farming, part of it, I guess, involves looking at past historically what was happening to the land um, with the water and so kind of learning right. how it naturally wanted to flow. I suppose back then we had to prove that the landscape was drained in the first place, yeah. So the the historic component was significant in terms of um, looking back at uh, the landscape history in terms of what the place used to look like and what has occurred to it. So between 1860 and 1940, and the Australian government gave out grants for agricultural expansion, and you'll find this happened in America as well. It happened everywhere. It was basically the agricultural expansion meant removing the wetlands lowering the water table so that once you do that grasses will move in and the cattle will go in and graze it yeah so essentially this was the it was kind of the separation of rivers and floodplains at this point and also the the beginning of a really um something that something that happened over a period of time but between when they removed wetlands at this level they knew that water prior to their removal took 100 days to move through a wetland body and after their removal it took six days so if you if you if you then put the 96 percent on top of that you can see how we literally drained whole catchments mm. or watershed really there but this this understanding of the role that wetlands play in hydrology is important. They behave like a, a plug in the system. They put a, they hold this positive pressure against the water that's trying to fall into it. That's what slows the flow of the water through the landscape. And when you remove so many, you end up increasing the, the speed and velocity, the erosive forces and energies involved in erosion that it, this is why our rivers run muddy and we fertilize the ocean every time there's a major flood event it's um it's it's why the water cycle is going in reverse essentially although it's not necessarily um well understood i suppose amongst people what that what i just said but that's what's occurring so Right, yeah, so basically as we've speeded up the water, it's led to more erosion and more water draining out to the oceans um, and not staying on the land as long. That's so, right, yeah. So what are some of the techniques that uh, Peter Andrews and the Natural Sequence Farming did to, to slow the water down? Well, by, le by, by Peter learning from Aboriginal people how to read this old landscape, he could see where those old wetlands were as well. Mm -hmm. you know, um, so he literally went about um, doing some pretty what was considered extremely controversial and downright crazy stuff. You know, he 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 went out there with a bulldozer and started bull, bulldozing and battering eroded gullies and creek lines, and then reconfiguring shapes into them that were more in tune with the way that he'd learnt as a child to see the landscape. And essentially, um, he, one of the things that he did was um, constructed uh, 
a pretty hefty, uh, I guess you'd call it a berm of material right the way across a valley with a series of pipes running through it that could be manipulated. And what it did was created a massive wetland in behind it. And any time there was any extra flow in the system, automatically water was in the highest part of Tarwin Park. Now, that meant that he could gravity feed an entire floodplain from one point every time it rained, a totally self-managing system mm. uh, of building soil carbon. He took, a, he took a, an area of country that was just sand, right? And this is what happens in when a landscape's in decline, we see it big over here. Like when, what, what happens is you eventually you'll oxidize everything out and you just see sand and stuff. Like, you know, you know, and sand gets pushed around in big sort of uh, wet events and whatnot. And you get, you know, big areas that are all covered in sand. He grew weeds on top of that, so which was bloody controversial. What he was, and just slashed them and, and, and demonstrated that they, these things that we call weeds are actually plants that other people might call an our strategist. They strategize. They have a. They're they're doing a process of rapid recovery and facilitation for the next uh, series of plants that want to come in and have that piece of country. So what they're doing is they're building up the soil and kind of also preventing erosion. Is that what the key things are in this case? You're, everything's about dissipating energy, mate. Mm -hmm. When I could. When I keep saying that these principles and stuff, you're dissipating solar energy, you're dis dissipating wind energy, and dissipating water energy, all in sort of one go. And these plants are doing running, running the whole thing. Right. And, yeah. and unless you dissipate the energy, you won't sequester carbon. It's it's the the only thing that happens is the reverse. You'll oxidize it. Yeah. Right. There's a gov the governors. It governs whether or not it's coming down or going up. It's important. And do you um, want to just say what an R strategist is in the ec in ecology? An R strategist that um, its strategy is to rapidly colonize bear country. Yeah, and it'll be all the same plant and squillions of them most likely. Right, and they'll be what you generally call a weed. Yeah. But if you go and kill it, you'll just go and get another lot of weeds come up. But if you let it, essentially, if you let the processes take place and recycle those plants, like slash them, you'll find the grasses start to come in. And there's a, there's a fair bit of seed. I mean, you might not necessarily want grass, but that's what will happen if you recycle the weeds. If you get, right. I mean, you, grasses are going to be better than bare sand, hey, and bloody hot. At least you're starting to reactivate a water cycle. You're starting to manage the heat dynamics of that part of the country. You know, it's just a bias on plants that prevents us from doing it. Right. So, yeah, so basically it's using ecological succession principles. Or mm. from an evolution point of view, it's kind of like punctuate equilibria. You're trying to, you first bring in the grass, which then leads to the next uh, series of uh, species. And then they're kind of, gradually building up like a snowball, this kind of soil building and dissipative engine. I, I guess if you see yourself as a part of a complex system, yeah, mm -hmm. and not actually really the manager, 
right? That's probably this is, I suppose, we see ourselves as land managers, right? And I think that is probably not basically not giving credit to things like weeds and other plants that are actually full time managing the landscape and the climate. Right? We need to sort of work like a husbandry kind of approach and more of a gardening kind of approach to, and a mimicking approach. That's the, the mimicking part is more about not trying to work against cycles. And this is what we have done for a bloody long time is that we're constantly working against cycles and all it's ever done is oxidize things. You know, it's the, it's the reversal of that process. It's accepting that sometimes the plants that do the best job and the fastest, I mean, our, our strategists are eventually taken over by K strategists. Uh, the longer living one, you know, once the longer living plants start to take over and space becomes an issue, they start to, you know, these other plants, the, the other strategists die out. They've done their job. There's no need for them there, but they will come back if you clear the country again. So, you know, the seed banks always sort of, when you've got soil, you'll have, and grasses, you'll have a seed bank of weeds sitting in there, but they'll only ever come back if you turn the soil over and then set the process off again. And the succession process has to happen. You go and do it, mate, try it out, and you'll see it happen. That's partially all of, all of the stuff that we're talking about comes from a level of observation. And, and when, we, when we say it, we know that we, what, it, becomes a level of science, it becomes a level of landscape science when you, and there's predictability about the things that you're doing. Yeah? And that's what science is all about, isn't it? When you sort of, when you have a kind of idea of how things work and then you sort of practice it and you see that if, you, if I do this, I'm going to get that result. It's kind of, um, there's, a, there's a level of observation, biomimicry and sort of, um, yeah. So, so the weeds kind of help also, like by slowing it down, also help it get into the groundwater. And then also, I think, uh, Peter Andrews will also sometimes build these leaky weirs, right, or check dams that across the river to help slow down the, the flow of the river also? The, the term leaky weir came from... Uh, so everything Peter's done, we've had to try and change legislation to enable it to be more widely used. That's one of the reasons why it's, it's still... Um, you know, there's people working on trying to do that today, but it's um, been a bloody slow process to see this stuff unroll across. You know, uh, I mean, we he's done a, he's done an incredible job in terms of um, drawing awareness to it. But um, what was your original question? I apologise. Sorry. Oh, I was just kind of commenting on some of the processes they've used to slow down the water and. But maybe just to, maybe could you explain a little bit just uh, what the leaky weirs were made of? How did you guys build them? Well, they can be made of sort of uh, they can depending on where you are and what and the, and the sort of generally the generally one of the best materials obviously is going to be rock, but um, you know logs and um, logs and plants and basically basically what a leaky weir is it performs the function of a wetland it's like going in and starting to re-establish the, the what how wetland would have behaved and functioned in the landscape so you get if you if you're going to put a pile of rocks in there essentially it becomes a trellis for plants to start growing on 
and then it's the systems kind of activated then it's because the, it's the plants that start to capture the debris and separate out and process all the water on the step does that did, did that bit make sense to you yeah so and the, you're doing this you're doing this in the river so yeah so you're placing yeah. the log or the rocks across the river um mm -hmm. that's right so it's raising the water table up behind the but it's also it's it's they're also on the highest point of the landscape so effectively when you raise the water level up at that highest point it affects upstream it'll raise the water level upstream to that height as well mm -hmm. does that make yeah so what i do in one place may well depending on the fall of the land so if it's the murray darling system where the fall of the land over 100 kilometers might only be you know I don't know, 600 a metre, three metres, whatever it might be. It's over a distance, you can raise water levels quite high, quite quickly, yeah, in one event even. Right. Put a structure in the water levels up. It's a matter of gardening that structure, getting a bunch of plants in it. And the, the plants actually, the roots of plants get in amongst the rocks and amalgamate it so that when the it's not a solid structure in the sense that, you know, if a flood comes over, there's a lot of pressures on these structures. It's an area where there's a, lot, there's a fair bit of pressure going on. And if it was, say, if it was concrete, that kind of pressure could easily crack it. But because it's a series of rocks and the best, the best um, aquatic wetland tree that there is really to do the job, and it's another one they call an aquatic weed, is a willow because it'll grow in amongst those rocks and set its roots down and bind them all together. But when a flood comes through, it's it's amalgamated together by the roots of plants. It's, it's um, yeah, they don't like. Uh, sorry to sorry to jump around, but they don't they don't like willows very much. But they've been showing that um, they bioaccumulate heavy metals and all sorts of toxic stuff. Right? They're a, they're a bloody wonder plant. Uh, but between those and poplars, they're one of these um, kind of wetlandy plants that'll trap. One of our issues is when we've got sediment on the move, there's potential for wet, wetlands to deal with some really nasty, toxic stuff, immobilise it, and put it in this kind of silty, organic ooze that's, that plants are living in. I mean, that really says something about those plants' capacity to process this stuff as well, see? They're, they're living toxic compounds. They're turning, they're turning those toxic compounds into a new set of compounds. And wetlands are, um, I mean, people are getting switched onto it these days, but and, and the types of plants performing different roles for different things, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's I suppose it's an emerging field in some respects, but... Um, potentiality to deal with um, toxins is significant. Yeah, yeah. I think people are beginning to understand again a little bit how, how, how useful wetlands are for cleaning because um, the water and, uh, and wetlands are of course also useful for increasing the groundwater and, um, and also evapotranspiration. And so there's a whole series of functions that wetlands can do and so I think we're beginning to realize again, like maybe we want to populate our um, landscape again with, with wetlands. Mm -hmm. um, in terms, wetlands will manage the, the speed of the flow of the losses of water out of the system. 
Mm. Yeah. So you're like not a man. It's not a man-managed thing, mate. Right? It's a thing that we know actually works. Yeah, like it's an it's an it's replicating nature. That's the that's the um. Yeah, if you were if you were to try and do it any other way, it'd be way just way too expensive. You see, that's the set you set up a system that's managing itself, and then once it's managing itself, it might have a couple of issues through its teething period. But people that understand how to um, how the system runs can quickly sort of um, attend to sort of you know if you if you put a new system in, it sort of needs to be you want to keep an eye on it for the first sort of three years or so. And these days, it's extreme events are more regular. But when you get those big flows, they can they can damage new work. Yeah, when plants are getting established and things like that. So it's this. There's a period in the first three years where you've got to keep a, a pretty keen eye on things. Um, but then once things are established, you can you can you can see the system switches over to a self maintenance system at a certain point, you know. And then you so your agriculture exists within that. What I just there's a there's a part that the the system is meant to run for free for us, right? And it's providing all the carbon and water for us, and then we can practice agriculture. The whole system is managing off the of what the wetland environments used to do. Once we degrade those, we start having to use more chemical inputs and farming becomes unviable. And you trace it back, trace it back, trace it back. And you'll find when the wetlands got removed, you started to desertify your whole continent, right? That's probably... Yeah, the- so you're, you're suggesting that... Uh, so this system, yeah, is you're building agriculture by creating wetlands, whereas... And, and it seems like there's a lot of modern farming systems where as soon as a soil gets too much water, they're just trying to drain it out. So they're... I guess I'm saying... Woodlands. I guess I'm saying the viability of agriculture is dependent upon the functionality of the overall landscape, right? Right. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Right? And we don't sort of connect all the dots back to things that we see the prices of input fertilizers go up over time and and all of these other costs of things going up all the time, right? But we don't, tr- like if we, if we were to trace things backwards to the degradation of the landscape, we'd find exactly the cause of why things went up in price. Mm. And it might, se- might seem like a, how did you get from there to the wetlands? But like, <sighs> we've sped up the losses of all of the soil and the, the, that agriculture exists upon, you know, every time there's a bloody big rain event, we wash another quadzillion tons back out to the ocean. It's not how the evolutionary process on land worked. We should be able to observe that and go, there's something wrong. But generally, we don't. You know, it's, um... Is it true sometimes in natural sequence farming, you even hand move some of the soil that got washed downstream back up uphill? Uh, you would be more inclined to, so because every year all of those wetland plants are going to die off, yeah, and they'll reseed. So those wetland plants represent all of the fertility that's washed down off the hillside, got trapped in the wetland, then processed in, 
process those set of compounds into a new set of compounds, right, different to the original ones, but still sort of related to, if you were to harvest those materials and take them back up to the high ground and put them below a contour channel where you've got full of water and a mulch pile that you can seep water through, imagine how long it would take animals to do that same thing, right? And when you take animals out of the system that would have otherwise done that job at one time, you have to behave like them. This is what happens when we disturb ecosystems. Yeah, if we take animals like this, there was times when animals used to perform that function or that role. They'd come down to the wetlands during the day, they'd graze it out, and then they're not silly. They'll go and sit in the place that gets the sun first thing in the morning because they don't want to waste their energy that they got from their food. They'll use the sunlight energy to warm and then go start grazing. But in the process, take all the fertility that they ate during the day and shoot it back out up on the top of the hill again. That doesn't happen anymore. So that's one of the things that we need to replicate. Yeah? Mm -hmm. When we disturb nature, we create a job for ourselves if it's going to run right. Right. And it's, you know, I've done work with Peter in drought where we've, um, we've had a body of water sitting up on the high ground and a bunch of stable waste from like quadzillion tons of stable waste. Um, and we've got a truck and driven it up to the top of the hill and spread it out all, all across the contour and then siphoned water through a mulch pile. And in drought, and we come back a couple of weeks later, we've siphoned a lot of water through it, a lot of water through it, and essentially made this sort of compost, and essentially made another contour with a compost tea to soup sort of thing would seep down the hillside from the highest point. When we come back a couple of weeks later, there was this bloody green strip where we'd worked. It was over a kilometre long, you know, right the way down to the river system from where we'd been working. Everywhere else was still brown. Uh, but it was just demonstrating how you can seep fertility through the roots of plants and how rains work and things. You know, when the first rains come, they seep along through the... Before they infiltrate the soil down deep, they'll first run through the, across the roots of plants. And if you can mimic that process in drought even, you can still start to turn the system back. And we're demonstrating things that you don't have, even though it's drought sometimes, it all depends. Water's obviously where you're getting your water from and how much you've got to use and waste in it. You know, we might consider it a waste, but it's a, if you can start to reactivate water cycles and start to get water back at night time, then that's, you know, they're things we should talk about. Um, about and we should talk a lot about a lot of things, but we should talk about, um, you know, how does, how does the due process work? What, why, why, does, why when we rehydrate landscapes, does it make the dew come back? That's it. You know, these are... They, and is it even true? I mean, what I just said then, is it even true? You know, I mean, I suppose we first we've got to start with just learning how to make observations in the landscape. We're going to go out there and have a look and see whether or not what I just said is true or not. So, And is that what you've seen? Like when you've kind of, so I guess you and Peter have got, go around to different farms and do these processes. Have you seen do kind of come back? Oh, look, I... I, once you once you can see it, you can see it wherever you go. Basically, I mean, mm -hmm. I can I can go through a landscape and see dew across 
I can see the moist air, moist air sitting in the atmosphere over an area, and I'll know that that's the wettest part of the ground for sure. If I'm driving through a landscape first thing in the morning and there's a dam in a in a paddock, I can see mist sitting on top of it. Right? This is what I'm talking about. Why do we see that? Yeah. Right. Why do we? What's the processes involved in why we see mist like that? And sometimes you'll see it sitting straight over the top of a dam like that and nowhere else in the landscape. So something's going on with water. What's the... So I think they're things we should explore. Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about how the dew is created or what, what's <laughs> leading to more dew happening? Well, I can, but I mean... you. We, you and I are both part of sort of water groups where we kind of discuss this stuff, and it's kind of pretty one way at the moment. What's your, what's your, um, what's your understanding? I suppose let's let's kind of let's let's do a little bit of a, a share of information about things. You know, I've got an idea about things or why things are going on. Yeah. Well, I do and, think and, uh, atmospheric water is important, and like there's a cycle as it evapotranspires, and that it comes back in, um, you know, during the night onto the plants and onto the trees. And so that's, that's an important part of the water cycle that's not talked about too much, this whole dew creation. And in some, in some more arid areas, the dew is actually quite important, I think. Well, you know, the work, of, um, source it, of uh, it, supply of water for the plants. You've had a pretty good, pretty good run through the biotic pump principle by now, haven't you? Like had a, had a fairly solid read of that and, and, um, I mean, it, it, it's this idea of the, it's actually not even the idea, it is the, it's this principle, and it comes from the second law of heat, of, um, the second law of thermodynamics, and it involves heat transfer, you know, the direction that, um, it's as part of the second law of thermodynamics, heat, heat transfer. And Do you want to just say what the second law of thermodynamics is? Oh, we're talking about entropy. I should. I should. Uh, it overcomes the first law of thermodynamics. So energy can't be created or destroyed. So if we reach thermo, if we were we to reach thermodynamic equilibrium, all cycling of everything would stop. Right. So, um, if you imagine uh, equilibrium like a swinging pendulum, yes, the 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 movement of the swinging pendulum entropy entropy explains why we don't reach why everything doesn't stop entropy explains why cycles cycle does that make sense you should i'm well, talking uh, yeah, to yeah, it, yeah, i'll try to explain give some <laughs> examples so just say you have a cup of hot water in a in a room and then when the water cools down to room temperature, it kind of has reached equilibrium. So that's an example of equilibrium thermodynamics. When you have like, you say you put a pan on a stove and you turn on the heat, it's now in a non-equilibrium state because you're constantly putting in heat um, into the bottom of the pan and then it, you know, it has to cool off at the top. And so on earth, we kind of have this we have this uh, non-equilibrium situation where the, the sun is kind of constantly inputting energy and that energy from the sun is being transferred. And so it's, for instance, it's evaporating the water. Um, so the water changes from a liquid to a gas state and then it also cools down and the gas changes back into 
the liquid and clouds. Mm -hmm. So there's all these uh, non-equilibrium thermodynamic uh, processes happening in the water cycle. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So yeah. So if you want to go back to the whole uh, the biotic pump and the, how the forests and the trees and the yeah, water so the, the the entropy side of it in terms of um, the, the transfer of heat. Right. It's always happening the same way. So it's either, it's either the case that it's going from the hottest regions to the coolest regions or the areas of uh, lowest evaporation to the areas of highest evaporation. So we see the movement of water through the atmosphere occur in that way, yeah? Is that... Well, we should also say here that entropy... So basically when you heat up air, right, the air starts vibrating and, uh, and so there's both... Uh, a transition so, go. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, um, and, and uh, yeah, maybe we should explain how entropy, do you want to have a go at explain how entropy applies to the, to the, to the air, uh, the air molecules and the water molecules? Huh. You could, you, I, I suppose I, I, I try to explain entropy in the sort of, I suppose, in a way that it has attributes. And I don't, gen I, I mean, I, I know that, say, if you're boiling water, you're increasing the heat, you're increasing the entropy and the speed of the rate of um, increase. And in the process, um, you know, you see expansion and separation and conversion into a gas. So, that, so I suppose in terms of talking about entropy, it has these attributes about it. Like if I was... Um, it, it, it ex entropy explains why I can burn a, a piece of wood and then one day that will become a tree again. Yeah? But it also explains components of what happens when I burn that piece of wood where, it, um, where, I set, where I take the hole, I increase the heat, and through the process, I, I speed up the rate that the hole separates into its fractions. Now, these are attributes of entropy. Yeah? So... In that, in that process, we're seeing the separation of the whole expansion moving away from the center as, as it energy dissipates. And uh, in, we see carbon dioxide. We see all the other gases associated with burning. We see water vapor. We see the heat. We see the sun's energy that it took to the captured sun's energy being released. Everything's separating away from that original block of wood, but it's the the, the parts that are significant is uh, what happened when we increase the heat. We sped up the rate of cycling and where that where everything ended up. Right? It all ended up in the atmosphere. But entropy is a um, for another 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 um, attribute, I suppose, is the transfer of entropy. Is, is the direction that heat transfers. It's part of it's, a, it's part of the second law, in, and it governs like the gradation conveyor belt, or it governs um, atmospheric dynamics of uh, moisture in the atmosphere, going from sort of warmer to cooler regions. Um, so. All of these things determine to a, well all of our all of our big rain events and and things. So there's yeah. So let me just uh, give some simple examples of entropy. So you could like a simple example that a lot of people know is that if you just start letting all the stuff in your room go and don't pick it up and arrange it again, it kind of becomes more 
a high entropy state. And uh, you could imagine, mm, let's disorder. say half your room uh, is, is full of stuff and the other half is, is, is still clean and organized. And then, you just, and then over time, you know, some of your stuff will end up in the other half of the room. And so the entropy causes the stuff from the, uh, to mm -hmm. kind of move over the whole room. And so basically mm -hmm. you have hot air and cold air on earth. That's good. The hot that's air good. is going to that's flow good. to the cold air part. And so that's because of entropy. Like it wants to, because basically hot air has a high entropy and cold air has a low entropy. And so the, the hot air wants to spread, um, you know, to, to smooth out. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, Say if we were to say that our landscapes are in a state of landscape entropy, mm -hmm. yeah, there's and it, and it would be it would be sort of saying that um, there's a there's a state of um, and it's a it's it, it's not a bad sort of way to look at some of the erosive processes and the degradative the um, in a state of entropy in the in the in the way that it's separating and falling apart when you don't have plants managing the system i suppose is that does that sit with you oh i'll keep going uh, i guess there's a, there's a number of reasons why i i go on about it in terms of the heat transfer stuff there's periods of the year where we're in so we're in drought Right, and we've got a whole, and this is what happened in Australia in sort of bush fire season when, when we got any, we got heat waves coming across the country. We're not, if, if we were to use, um, if we were to, to consider what's what basically we're seeing areas, the moisture is moving from the areas of lowest evaporation to highest evaporation. Yeah, so under a heat wave condition, we're seeing the, the lowest evaporation over the continent picking up speed and moving offshore towards the highest evaporation. And this goes again, like this, I, I see this happening in Western Australia against the sort of prevailing system where heat will move offshore. Periodically, we're producing so much inland heat that that's, what, that's sort of, um, and there's factors in, uh, there's, there's factors that contribute to marine heat waves and boiling a lot of water and you, know, you mentioned a moment ago about um, uh, boiling water this is when we export heat off continents like this it's actually evaporating water off the oceans it's a component of climate it's a bloody significant component of China, climate change where we're putting massive volumes of water vapor into the atmosphere through this export of heat off landscapes. That's why um, the energy transfer component of the second law is significant when we're trying to understand things that are being observed. These things that... You know, so some of the stuff that I do is while these events occur, I, I study these events using sort of satellite imagery and you can... You can literally see, you know, these dust storms carrying heat offshore, and then the evaporation associated with it. Um, these, are, these are, these are. It's it's meant to. It, the system is actually meant to work the other way. When the landscape cools at night time, and it needs to, and and the plants need to to manage this running temperature of the landscape, so that what we end up seeing is that when the when there's, uh, we see the reversal of the heat transfer. So it starts to draw in moisture from the atmosphere back onto the land again. 
Does that make sense? I, I'm trying to picture, I'm not fully following. I, do you want to just give it another go? Yeah, yeah. Well, Maybe start we... with something physical. So just a simple physical situation and explain and explain from there. I suppose I suppose I use heat work, heat waves as the is the is the most extreme examples of when it becomes the most obvious to to visually see, mm -hmm. right? To make for anybody to make this as an observation, particularly using any of the, any of the um, um, programs. It's, okay, yeah. So let's yeah let's start with just the problem of heat waves. So basically, if we're trying to lower the amount of heat waves what are some of the things that we can do or, or what's the problem or what's causing the heat waves right now? And then it's, what can we do to do it? Stop that. It is the volume of uh, sensible heat that is re-entering the atmosphere off the surface of the landscape. Uh, it's because of what's occurring from ground height to 7,000 feet. That zone there, if it's not filled with water vapor or a greater amount of water vapor, latent heat and sensible heat, um, you essentially um, create um, steep gradients in the atmosphere when you produce too much sensible heat. Okay, so, so let's just, I'll just I'll just define a little bit sensible heat and latent heat. So sensible heat is the 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 vibration of the air molecules. So that's the heat you can feel. Latent heat is the um, when water vapor when water transfers from liquid to um, to vapor, there, it, it, there's a latent heat, um, and that's not actually able to be felt because it's actually just stored in the potential energy of the. Of when the you when you when you're out there in the paddock and you go to talk and you open up your mouth and your mouth gets that dry so fast, the atmosphere is full of sensible heat. Right? If you're out in the paddock and you're feeling humidity, that's latent heat. Right, and that's so the it. heat wave, the heat wave is caused by the sensible heat. Is that right? Yeah, that the sensible heat is the hot, dry heat. Right. right. And, and so that's the, the, when, the molecule is vibrating very much. And so basically part of what's, so if, if the water, so if trees like, you know, they perspire, right? And so they, they, they when they evapotranspire water, it cools the whole area. And so, so, so there's less, there's now less sensible heat or there's less, you know, kind of the heat that you can feel with your body and it's just stored in the latent heat where the, the phase change of the water. And so that's why it cools down, right? And so then there's less of a heat wave. Is that what, is that how uh, you I, I guess if you think about it, if you think about the properties of both sensible and latent heat and the, and the lower atmosphere, this is, this is from Kravik stuff, right? Is it the, the important zone here is from the ground height to seven to 9,000 feet and what's in that, like in terms of the short water cycle, right? that important when I, when I, when I what, what we're looking at what we're, what we're looking at here is the heat that's being re-radiated off the landscape back into the atmosphere so if we use the if we use energy the energy can't be created or destroyed and then we look at plants and go okay plants are processing that heat yeah in the absence of plants if energy can't be created or destroyed what then happens to the energy that is being re-radiated back into the atmosphere? That's a good question for people to ask. Eh? And, then, and then what is also occurring in the atmosphere as a result of that heat re-radiating back into the atmosphere and not being processed by plants? They're good questions, yeah? So if plants I didn't are quite, processed... 
Uh, yeah. So yeah. So the plants are kind of like they're managing the heat of the of the whole system. They're dissipating the heat in situ, right? right. And yeah, basically, plants are using water as a way of managing heat. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And and they, so and they, they manage the heat by uh, by by just turning the water, liquid water, into water vapor, and so that cools the whole system. Yeah. So it's kind of like how an air conditioner that's, does that's, it. So basically, that's plants are doing a certain what? kind of air conditioning function. Yeah, function. Yeah, All right. So, so I didn't quite understand this seven thousand to nine thousand feet. What's happening uh, at the seven thousand to nine thousand feet level, and why is it so? That that's the zone where the short water cycle is happening. Right, the small water cycle. There's a few different names for it: the daily water cycle, short water cycle. You know, basically, we're talking about the zone from ground height to seven to nine thousand feet. Oh, yeah. okay, from zero. Okay, from zero to seven thousand or to nine thousand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so let's explain the small water cycle or the short water cycle. So that's the water cycle where the water evaporates, transpires from the land, goes up into the air and then rains back down, which is in contrast to the large water cycle, which is from the ocean and, and to the land, to the rivers and back out to the ocean. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the larger water cycles above that seven to 9,000 feet zone as well. You know, there's a, there's a short water, there's a small water cycle above the ocean, but it's that sort of... Um, it's the larger water cycle, which is um, so when you, yeah, that, this is the work by Kravik again. When they separated out the large and small water cycle, they found what was it, uh, 410 millimeters a year in the short water cycle and 310 millimeters a year in the large water cycle. So the larger water cycle was the upper atmosphere stuff. It's a combination of both of them that make inland precipitation. So when you don't have the short water cycle over land, you debit out of that 410 millimeters a year, yeah? Right, yeah, so basically a lot of people uh, under the misimpression that most of our water only comes from the ocean or the rain, but actually it also comes from land evapotranspiring. Um, and, and most of our water. water goes actually in reverse to what we think. It actually goes, it needs to be fed from the lower atmosphere and by plants or water bodies in evapotranspiration and simply it's, a, they call it it's known as the bowen ratio by the way it's the it's the in a parcel of atmosphere it's the amount of sensible to latent heat in a parcel of atmosphere is the bowen ratio right so when, when you get too much sensible heat you and it's the result of the absence of plants because you know, if they were bringing back the nightly water which is what they'll do um they're making up for the the losses through the day does that make sense so the plants transpiring during the day but when it returns back as dew it it can adequately make up for its daily losses mm. so yeah so to, just to kind of explain so when you have just say you have a forest then you have a certain bowen ratio which is the amount of sensible heat to latent heat and uh, and sensible heat meaning how hot the air molecules are vibrating and latent heat is the more invisible storage of the, the heat. And so, but if you default, right. then, then you're not gonna have all that evapotranspiration. And so you're gonna have more sensible heat. It's gonna feel hotter and less latent heat. And so you've changed Correct. that Bowen ratio. And so that Bowen ratio right. Right. is actually yeah, a very right. important ratio right. that we should be paying a lot more attention to. 100%, 100%, yeah. yeah. You know, 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got a feeling it probably came from um, Professor Willie Ripple. It's one of those things I can't totally trace back. But it, you know, this this idea, this this way of understanding everything, where you know, it's not meant to sort of be hurtful to anyone's belief system, but it's a, like whoever your grand designer was, he had half a dozen good ideas and no imagination. He went around replicating them everywhere, and that's where this thing about energy dissipation and non-equilibrium and equilibrium and all these other laws are essentially the ones that we use as a package to, to explain everything that's sort of going on in the dynamics of things. So they're, they're really useful ground tools to explore and get your head around. And there's, 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 some, there's some ways of doing it that are probably better than others. There's some good books on this stuff. But, no? um, you know, people should... Oh, I've, got, I've got a book here in front of me. Sorry, I'm jumping around all over the place, mate. What are we talking about? Well, we're kind of talking about some of this thermodynamics. And I do think it's kind of an interesting way to look at this whole water um, picture is through the thermodynamics. Because uh, I, I remember reading David Holmgren's permaculture book. Uh, he was one of the founders of permaculture. And he had some thermodynamic argument from uh, Odom and, uh, and he kind of started basing some of his permaculture arguments uh, on that. And so, um, so I think it's also kind of interesting to try and develop this field and, and look at it through a thermodynamic lens. And, uh, hmm. and, and I, look, I, I, yeah, go ahead. So I found iopriogene stuff fascinating because it, it actually comes down to um, the development of human societies and stuff as well. We actually organize in patterns and ways that a physics can explain. And it's one of those things that just like when when permaculturalists talk about patterns in nature, I think this I think maybe that that's kind of what they're almost getting at in some ways. That because what we know now, well, what look at my learning journey has been a fairly long one. There's lots of things I know now that I didn't know sort of a while ago. And you know, when when I kind of when it when I sort of realised that equilibrium and non-equilibrium were both occurring simultaneously at the same time it's like jesus christ it blows you you know it's very it's the use of all of those things to explain what's going on is very fascinating as well as um as um yeah so you, you know. mentioned Ilya prigogine's uh name so i'll just kind of explain a little what his work was he he actually won the nobel prize i think in chemistry for studying this non-equilibrium thermodynamics. And so he was saying, so basically, physics. yeah, so it was, in, I think he wanted, or maybe it's physics. Um, I thought it was chemistry. Um, so basically in, in physics, there's these ideas called phases. So like water can be in three different phases, um, uh, ice, uh, liquid and gas. And so, uh, so as you change the temperature, it, it flips between one phase or the other, or you change the pressure and it flips from one phase to the other. What Prigogine did was he actually started looking at systems. So these are, so these are equilibrium systems, um, but not, he just started looking at it when the system was being driven, so by external inputs of energy, um, that there was actually also phases it could enter into. And so it would organize into a certain phase. So for instance, if you have this pan of oil and, and you turn up the heat, after a while, it wouldn't, it would, there's all these like circular, there's kind of a pattern of hexagonal patterns of circular motion of oil going up and then coming down in your pan. And that's an example of a non-equilibrium phase. That's kind of this nice pattern. And it's also kind of this stable state, but it's not in an equilibrium state. It's in a non-equilibrium so, state. 
can I can I add something yeah. to that? It's yeah. It's that it, it's a it's actually an energy dissipative structure. Right. Yes. Right. That, that's come into occurrence as a as a result of just energy and matter dissipating its energy. We're, it's a, it's a, it's what you see as a result of the dissipation of energy. Right. It only, it only comes into observation for us because the energy has been dissipated. Otherwise, right. just be all the gases and bits and pieces of stuff that it took to make something. That, it, that, you, you see what I mean? Yeah, so this energy dissipative structure is, some people have been advancing, I think William, Wilhelm Ripple and others, have, that's an important thing in this whole water cycle. And I mean, for example, in an energy dissipative structure is the hurricane, that um, it's constantly dry, you know, the water in the middle is going up through the center and then coming back down. And so there's this whole cycle and it's dissipating energy at this huge, huge amount, you know, in, a, in this very huge way. And so, but it's a kind of a structure and, um, and so that would be an example of an energy dissipative structure. And, and there's, there's reason to believe that an understanding of this is useful in the water cycle. So maybe you want to explain a little bit more why, why energy, do, energy dissipative structure is important to the whole water cycle. Well, I, there's, there's something you just said then was about um, you know, the process. It's all about heat redistribution too. What, what we're seeing with energy dissipative structures are the result of a whole bunch of heat, heat building up in one place and it needs to because of it needs to be transferred and redistributed over i mean that's how the planet works it balances out the heat over wider areas so what would that uh, something like a cyclone or a initiated as a, a heat wave and or a, a large maybe not a heat wave but it started as a hot drying out a whole lot of water and taking that um putting it in the atmosphere and and feeding it into a low and and you know, it, um, it's the way the planet redistributes heat. It uses water vapor to take it from one place and, and spread it out over another area. So, I mean, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I'll, I'll just to kind of yeah, why heat redistribution is important. I mean, just to think, just say you're in a hot room and you open the door, then that kind of redistributes the heat, or you know, like. Or if you just say you you know you know cold winter's day and you have the fire in one room, um, it, if you don't open the doors and you kind of keep the warmth in there, and then if you open the doors, it kind of moves the heat around. And so, so how how heat is distributed is is an important uh, function. And on Earth, there's all sorts of ways the heat is getting redistributed, and that's important, you know, to all the organisms living on it. And so. One of the ways heat does get redistributed on the earth is um, the water vapor can get, you know, it, it, it gets evapotranspired and then it can get blown, um, uh, you know, towards the poles from the, so the, there's, there's, there's hot air moving from the equators out to the south and the north poles and, and, and water vapor too moving. And so that's one way the whole heat um, gets redistributed. Um, and then another way is, uh, is, is through the whole, process of evapotranspiring and then coming creating dew at night and so um and so when the when the dew recondenses actually it, it it actually emits some heat so in some ways you're transferring some of the heat of the day into the night um yeah that's that right that's, that's what that's the difference between a forest system and desert too it's a, an observable sort of uh 
in the absence of plants, you've got extreme heat. And at nighttime, it's pretty cold. But in a forest system, you've got the opposite going on where it's cooler during the day. And at nighttime, it's warmer. It's water vapor in the lower atmosphere that's managing the thermodynamics of the, the heat dynamics of the landscape. Yeah. But so it's somehow kind of creating a sort of homeostasis where the temperature is more even. And you kind of imagine us as organisms, right? It's the, it's the, it's the same. Yeah, Sorry, right. it's, the, it's the same energy that it took to take a liquid vapor and convert it into a gas that's being released at nighttime. That's it's the heat that's being released out of the water vapor as it settles back down as dew that warms the night. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and, and and I was just going to bring up that you know, as as organisms, you know, our our bodies can be at a much hotter temperature than than uh, than you know the surroundings, and and you change the temperature of the surroundings, but your body still has the same temperature, so it has a sort of homeostatic process that keeps it at a certain uh, temperature. And similarly, like the forest, you know, the forest has a way of managing heat so that it keeps it, it you know, it keeps the temperature at at temperatures that it likes and so, mm-hmm. so so life you know in, in the whole ecosystem the biodiversity biodiversity has certain ways of maintaining the heat and so so there's an interesting way we don't normally think of life as controlling heat on the earth's plant but it is um uh, it is actually yeah through a lot of different kind of feedback processes so uh, can i tell you a little bit about where i am at the moment so yeah sort sure. of it sort of puts things into, in, and I can talk. We can talk about this. It, it contributes to the water vapor stuff because I'm, I'm, I'm literally, um, you know, five k's from the, up the end of a valley system, which has got part of the two percent of rainforest in Australia that's never been logged. Yeah, so it's part. It's a it, highest rainfall in the region. That's in the state. It's. Uh, so it's part of this intact forest system. I mean, imagine a highly diverse forest system, what it's doing during the day. You've got all these straws that are pumping. If, you, if you're capable of seeing what was the water vapour that was being emitted into the lower atmosphere, it'd be like seeing fire hydrants spitting water into the atmosphere above the forest, yeah? And then every afternoon, more or less, you see this cloud cover coming in over the top of it, and you start to see the direction of movement of water vapor in the atmosphere towards it. Yeah. So that we're looking at this parcel of atmosphere above the rainforest that at nighttime, as it's releasing its heat and settling back in, as dew, we're seeing areas of the atmosphere becoming available and supporting that sort of, uh, that advection process of moisture in the atmosphere moving towards it and it's the it's you're seeing an area of high evaporation and water and there's less evaporation in the atmosphere so that's why it's being pulled towards it that's the you see it as a daily observation when you're when you're not that far away from it yeah that's it's it's more or less how that a forest system works and a hydrated landscape functions the same way. It's putting a lot of moisture into the atmosphere. At nighttime, when it's cooling, it, it starts to draw that moisture in off the off the oceans or out of the out of the lower atmosphere towards it. That's why you're seeing it as dew. That's why it, that's what supports that process. Yeah, it's a. It's a hmm. it, 
so I just want to kind of go back to some of the earlier stuff and with this this thermodynamic stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And you were talking about how the water is dissipating energy in the rivers and all that. So I haven't I haven't uh, approached it from that framework as much. So how does that? Uh, can you tie together what's happening in the atmosphere thermodynamically with what's happening in the rivers and the groundwater, like the whole well, thermodynamic picture? You know? how non-equilibrium can be used in a river system to describe or in a geomorphology sense to describe the patterns. Yeah, right, like yeah. When you see a delta or, um, you know, that you know that tree branching effect that you see in wetland systems? Like if you were to look at an aerial photograph of these things, you know, like a, or even a, a, a photograph of someone's lung, you know, you see this, um, uh, an artery type, yeah, I'm trying to get. I'm trying to say something to you that gives you a visual image. Right. It, right. It, yeah. It, imagine a picture of. Um, imagine a picture of uh, that sort of tree branching, an aerial photograph above a above a, a wetland uh, delta system where you see this sort of branching that looks a bit like a, a same photograph of a lung. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, these these are the patterns. Those patterns are developed out you can use non-equilibrium to describe how those patterns evolved over time because it was the energy of the water and the matter in the material, the materials in the water body that eventually you see shapes develop as the result of dissipation of energy. Right. Yeah. And generally that's where you see the wetlands develop where the, where the, where the water spreads out all over and sediment drops out of suspension. Right. Yeah. And builds and grows rather than the opposite. Right. So, yeah, so... You you end up with multiple flows of water in areas, not river systems the way we know them as such. It's drains. Like floodplains were braided streams. They had multiple flows of water over them as a result of... You know, wetlands basically when when a when a high volume of water hits a wetland it pushes the water out sideways onto high ground and it traps fertility there and the wet plant the wetland plants then utilize that fertility and grow sideways so each time they do that they push the water further sideways which creates more than one stream it's quite it, it's hard to believe but it's you know, it's definitely how it works. Right. So basically, as the water evapor- evaporates, it's gaining energy from the sun, raising it up. And then when it rains, it comes back down in the rivers. Um, it, it, there's an interesting way that, that that energy then starts getting dissipated and it can get dissipated laterally. And, and that's kind of what we want in our water cycle to get some of that water dissipating laterally. Yeah. And, 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 and in America, in North America, like beavers help with kind of dissipating it laterally. And then in Australia, these leaky weirs and um, rocks in the river can help guide the water when it hits it to kind of move laterally. Repl- replicating wetlands is the, um, you know, if you, if you can see where the wetlands used to be and put them back in the same places and understand how to, how to get it right, it has a significant effect to the wider landscape it, it basically re, it's it's the plug that recharges the groundwater once you once you're once you've got that groundwater pressure in that in, in that area right you raise the water 
in the in the riverbed behind it back up to its previous flow height then what happens is that's that's essentially a lens for the groundwater in the floodplain so if i go out on the floodplain over this doesn't happen overnight but it does happen is that you'll go out onto the floodplain dig a hole and you'll find water at the same height as it is in the river yeah the floodplain becomes yeah. like a a storage and that's this is the way it used to work water used to be there and because what when we've drained the floodplain we lower the water table there all the water leaks out of the floodplain into the lowest point of the river and takes a whole heap of other salts and stuff with it causes salinity and all sorts of issues but if you raise the water level up it sits a freshwater lens on top of the old salinity and the plants operate out of that and it just becomes incredibly productive very fast it's a i suppose the difference between um this system and, and a few others is that one it's self-functioning it manages itself after a period of time and then you sort of operate your agriculture within it it's um one of the, the there's five projects on earth that are um recognized by the united nations to meet the 2030 millennium development goals for water-related issues sustainability a whole range of the sustainability goals that um you know peter andrews is you, you may as well throw natural sequence farming at the top of those five um projects and you know we've got we've got all sorts of issues going on all over the world that we now need to address and some of the best methodology that can be applied to it. And, um, you know, I see a real need to upscale the level of training involved and for people to understand this stuff. There's, there's massive gaps in, um, in training and education around. There's people doing significant work along that, along, but, you know, we've got I'm, I'm particularly concerned from a climate component that water vapour and landscape stuff plays a major role in all the heating um, that is under-recognised and underutilized, and and we, we, we're really at a point where we need to, to take the best, the best things that we have in our toolbox and apply them. And there's, a lot of, there's a lot of methodologies that we could try that haven't really tested themselves in time. But um, these things about the landscape science component, uh, you know, this is how the system used to function. We're replicating a system the way that it used to function. And then it becomes self-managing, not something we need to keep going back and repairing. No, it's, um... So what would you say are some of the ways water affects climate? What are the main ways water affects climate? major one which is so not discussed is the export of heat and the evaporation that contribution has to superstorm events ice melts marine heat waves there's lots of things going on that aren't being discussed or recognized properly when we have big heat waves events and that heat is exported off the continent you imagine what you take 200 ml of water and put it on the stove and go and boil it, close all the windows and see how much atmosphere you fill up with water vapor and then scale that up to a continent scale and export masses and masses of heat off it. 
and watch the cloud cover build up over the oceans in the process. And then within a matter of days, a major, major storm event come your way. Uh, this is how it operates, not being noticed. Because the, the amount of all that water in the atmosphere has got to go somewhere. And if you so, watch so, it. I, I didn't quite follow this. So you're saying storms, major storms come from not enough water evapotranspiring into the air? Is that what you're saying? Some of these major storms and one of the big trigger events that triggers them is the export of heat off a continent, evaporating water, contributing large volumes of water to the atmosphere that has to go somewhere. And a low pressure system in the vicinity of all that water will suck it in and use it to dissipate it over a wider area. It'll take the heat from one place and spread it over a wider area's water. That's so, the way so that... are you saying if there's more forest, so just say over a piece of land there's forest or there's no forest, which one is exporting more water vapor and leading to more storms? The one with more forest or the one with less forest? Well, you should be able to answer that one. Which way does heat? It goes from the areas of lowest evaporation to highest evaporation. So if you're in a drought and you're exporting heat, you, you're going from the lowest evaporation to a greater amount of evaporation that's happening over the ocean. That's the way the heat is moving. Yeah, but the hot, dry. Once you get once you get to the point. I mean, I've seen it in Australia. We see a heat wave come across the continent. And we start to see the edges of the rainforest being threatened with fire. These places aren't meant to burn, right? So this level of sort of heat, we're talking about the whole east coast of Australia now, whole east coast of Australia taking heat off the continent. When the Kiwis start complaining about having heat waves that's been exported off our continent, this stuff's happening, you know? They, they, that's how far it goes. Okay, so here's a, here's a way to kind of, I guess, understand is hot air moves from the hot areas to the colder areas, right? So if it's hotter over the land, then that, that air is going to move towards the ocean and, and it contains a right. lot of water vapor. And if there's a lot more water vapor over the ocean, that's going to rise up and create these hurricanes and other big storm events. The sensible heat produced off the landscape blocks the progression of moisture from the ocean towards the land. Yeah? Because the heat wave moves, it's like you've got to imagine this belly of atmospheric heat from the ground height to seven to 9,000 feet moving across the continent on its way to the ocean on the other side. Yeah, No water vapor is going to come in off the ocean under those conditions. What it does is puts up this wall of heat and pushes, and then once it gets to the water, it starts to heat the water off the ocean. That's where we see the increases of evaporation and water vapor to the atmosphere. That's the bit that's not being seen. And I've seen papers that you've posted about where there's significant things in there from IP, IPCC reports. Right? These are very significant things, and not and what's significant what is what's not being said in them. It's a, they're saying that. Our landscapes are heating faster than the oceans. Right? Right. What it says, what that says is desertification is locked in, mate. It might not happen tonight, but we basically we've set a system in place where everything's more is going off than it's coming back all the time. Right. Does that make well, here's one yeah. way to kind of also see it. Like if you have one area of your room that's hot and one area that's colder. 
And if you increase the temperature differential, then it's going to get more turbulent when you suddenly, you know, open up those two areas to intermix. And so the greater the temperature difference, the more, basically the more turbulence then results, right? And so that holds true for the area, the, 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 the heat over the land and heat over the ocean. If the temperature difference is greater between land and ocean, then you're going to naturally lead to a lot more turbulence in the atmosphere, which leads to greater storms. Look, let's look at where we're putting all the water. All right. remember, remember that drainage part about the removing the wetlands and how they measured the water flow prior to and after the removal of wetlands and the amount of wetlands and what the consequences of, of the removal of the drainage paradigm. Mm -hmm. That hunt days was reduced to six and we pulled out all the plugs that eventually lowered the groundwater. So now when we get a big rain event, within six days, it's probably all gone. It depends on how big it is, but like literally, like it's, it rushes out. Right. Yeah? It used to take a hundred days. So we're in the water cycle. Where have we put all of this water and heat and stuff? It's no longer in the land. We're exporting it off in the atmosphere. We end up with this big amount in the atmosphere. Like there's this components that for everyone, for every, the CO2 component. Now let's break it down a bit. So one degree of increase of CO2 being, uh, warming is 7% more water vapor. So that's a chunk of what we're seeing going on in the atmosphere. Yeah, so we, let's not deny, I'm not going to deny the CO2 component. The landscape component, the landscape heat interaction component is a bit that's not being discussed in the climate conversation very much. Uh, the, although we, you and I know that the IPC is looking at it, there's problems with the science. Yeah, there's, a, there's things that are not definitive. People can't get behind these statements with surety. You, know, you, you understand what I'm saying? The science doesn't really, scientists don't get up and speak about those things very much. That's why, we, why it's not really discussed in the climate community. But it needs to be more because there's big parts of it we're not looking at closely enough that are contributing to ice melt events. You know, I'd like to unpack some of these satellite imagery with you, with you at some point in time, but it requires us both to sit down and look at the same thing at the same time. And, and you can run, you know, you can you can run things and see where the heat's moving. So you can test you you can test the theories and stuff against it in real time. Where there's ob this thing about um, there's, there's things going on daily at times with heat coming off landscapes and then superstorm events happening within days later, and people not seeing the correlation. Right, it has to do with our our degree of scientific study in this area. But, right. Yeah, because and, I mean, intuitively, it makes sense. Like, if how much heat you're like generating off the land in a certain area should affect all sorts of, you know, weather events um, because weather has a lot to do with heat where, because basically that's how wind moves where, because wind is caused by heat and, and cold differentials. And, um, and, and so, so yeah, so, so intuitively it should make sense that if we're evapotranspiring cooling that local area or we're not, like that should make a big difference in the whole larger weather system. And, um, and I, and I also think that in the climate models, the transpiration, it's hard to measure exactly the amount of evapotranspiration that's happening. And so there's a lot of, um, uh, you, know, you, can't, you can't change the gradients over a landscape 
and not expect to change the gradients in the atmosphere and the thermal extremes as a result of that, yeah? So right. going back to that Owen ratio stuff. You, yeah, and I think it what, goes back to the thermodynamic. In a thermodynamic system, the whole gradient is zero because the whole system is at the same temperature or the same pressure. But in a non-equilibrium system, you have temperature gradients. And so things are always being driven and moving. And so if we're going to increase the temperature gradients on Earth more and more, then more and more things are going to be driven and happening. And so um, we, we want that motion to be in, we want that, those driven cycles to be in more, in certain ways that are better for us as opposed to more extreme weather. Can I, can I put that another way? Yeah, sure. If we have changed the Bowen ratio over in the landscape heat interaction, if we've changed that, we accept that there's a component of the landscape heat thing that's been altered as a result of drainage and deforestation at a global scale. Yeah. So, uh, what we've done is created a situation. We, we accept that um, equilibrium and non-equilibrium occurring simultaneously, both like a leaf on a tree and energy dissipated structure. We can use energy energy dissipation to describe the development of wetland process and delta systems and whatnot. It's equilibrium and non-equilibrium occurring at the same time. Under under the new climate conditions along with our extra seven percent of moisture in the atmosphere we've created because of drainage and deforest a greater amount of disequilibrium between the lands and the atmosphere so today in the new climate system we see a greater amount of non-equilibrium in the atmosphere and less non-equilibrium in the landscape i'm not sure if this they say is that once sense. more we're saying more I mean, that sounds pretty profound. So we're seeing more non-equilibrium in the atmosphere and less non-equilibrium in the landscape. That's right. And there's less non-equilibrium in the landscape because there's less wetlands and less of these water because, structures. Because energy can't be created or destroyed, right? And then we go back to entropy again. When we say landscapes today are in a state of landscape entropy, right? it's because in the majority of state, we're seeing losses and separation out of the system rather than development you see what i mean we're seeing we're seeing everything break down into its finer components and be washed off the continent or lost through the atmosphere instead of being processed in situ over land so there's less there's less plants, for instance. As an example, there's less plants, so there's less non-equilibrium structures. There's less energy dissipation occurring over land. Right? So you see the dissipation occurring in the atmosphere as a result. Yeah, so one way to think of on the land is that when you're slowing down a river, say, you know, with the banks and the tree roots and everything, that's energy dissipation. But if you take away the tree roots and all these things that are slowing down the water, then there's less energy dissipating happening at that land. Imagine, imagine a whole heap of wetland plants sitting in a wetland body and the water moving through it. Every plant is an energy dissipative structure because when the water hits the plant, it takes the one flow and divides it into two. And when it hits the next plant, the same thing happens. It takes the two flows and divides it into four, into 16, into 32, into 64, into 128. 
And in the process, the water slows down and the sediment falls out of the water and gets trapped in this oozy thing and the water comes out cleaner at the other side, right? It's taking right. all of that and everything and dissipating the energy and building this wetland energy dissipated structure that grows over time as a belly of material out of the out of the water right and becomes this pond on the high ground that has these channels moving around the outside which go out onto the higher ground that's actually how the landscape developed and when we drained our landscapes all of these flows of water we put them in one place that had the erosive energies now of three volumes of water in the one place and it just chiseled the landscape out. So because energy isn't being created or it can't be created or destroyed, it's not processed, entropy is taken over in a way that all you're seeing is the dissipation, the losses and separation of stuff. Right. And then, and then I also want to kind of mention in there that some of that water then goes underground and seeps and uh, and then... Tree roots uh, can draw that water up, so the trees kind of evaporate, transpire. So it pulls this pressure, and that pulls the water up. And that water can sometimes go all the way up to the tree, or can the tree can just redistribute to the soil. And so that's another this, energy dissipative structure that's kind of happening, um, where it's going down and then come, being pulled back up again. Just, just imagine a imagine a, a fairly extensive scale floodplain for a second, with a river running through it, right? And we'd walk down there and go and see that and we'd say, oh, this is sort of normal, right? But actually, if we look backwards in time, what happened was they removed the wetlands out of there. And if we look around a bit closer, there's actually all of these old shapes left behind. Right? What, when, today, when it rains on the floodplain, it goes, leaks down through the ground and then comes out in the lowest point in the river. I've said this before. If we put these wetlands back in place, and the court, you know, we're talking about raising the bed of the the eroded gully back up to a height to where it used to be, and what that what that does now is because of because there's this body of water in the, in the uh, what was an eroded gully, that body of water holds the pressure against the walls of the any prevents the leakage of water out of the landscape and into what used to be. Does that make sense? When you, when you, fill, when you fill the water, when, this eroded gully, you put the wetland back in, the rains have come and the water tables come back up. Now it's got this water pressure against the floodplain around it. So any water that's in the floodplain can't actually seep out into the river until the water level in the river falls down. And then the water seeps out of the floodplain. That's mm -hmm. what used to keep rivers running. Right. That's how it was. What kept rivers running during the dry times was the water leaking out of the floodplain. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. But that, that profound, the thing that sounded a little bit profound before was about a greater amount of non-equilibrium we see it these days with super, the rise in superstorm events and stuff right um yeah so in the future in the future I would, I would like to be able to sort of do something like a share screen situation where i take you through some i've 
Yeah, you know, I wrote a paper a little while ago. I'm kind of, I'm sort of glad I've, I've learned things so, since I've, I, I didn't publish that, but I sort of showed it to a few people. There's things in it that I've sort of since learned, but there's still plenty of stuff in that that's as relevant as when I wrote it today. It's like we could unpack some of the, uh, unpack some of the material in that and also look at other sort of satellite imagery and match it against some other programs to use it to describe how, we can actually see atmospheric rivers and the potentiality to steer them back around from from doing the damage that they've been doing. You know, we're, we're, Do you want to just explain what an atmospheric river is? Well, an example, and more recently, we had one occur that um, started from uh, just below South Australia, and it that's what, that was its sort of point of origin uh sort of uh, the point of where it initiated i suppose well it originated um, outside in the ocean right yeah off off the Offshore, south australia yeah. yeah below south australia mm -hmm. and streamed down to antarctica so if you're looking at it as a satellite imagery imagery you can basically see it as a red band of hot water through the atmosphere and then we've, we've had Australia's, there's been a couple of pretty good atmospheric river events more recently to observe, I'll tell you. But this one was, this one in particular meant that, uh, you know, but the basic report around it was that it, uh, in order to get a marine heat wave in Antarctica, you have to have 40 degrees plus increase in temperature for three or four days running, right? And this is what occurred in this event. And it rained so much from this river that it melt, it snapped off a chunk of ice, 1,200 square kilometres, um, I think, what was it, the Cougar Ice Shelf. Um, yeah, and what we're starting to see now is a similar sort of, what I'm starting to see now, through going, through backpedalling, through some of this, uh, what they're putting, just putting connections together, is that they're, they're, they're basically doing a similar sort of thing, using old satellite imagery and, to see there's a whole bunch of ice melt events that are actually related to atmospheric rivers. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, atmos the atmospheric rivers is the, so there's rivers on the ground that, you know, the water goes from inland to the sea. Atmospheric rivers are, are the water vapor in the, in the air, which we can't see, that are kind of blowing inland. And sometimes there's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's as much water as that's flowing out in the big rivers. And there so... It comes in and it creates these big rains. If you, if you think about atmospheric rivers and you think and you use the biotic pump principle and all the things we know about the ratios of heat, things start to those combination of things start to make much more sense. Yeah, like to understand the biotic pump principle is essentially saying that we these are the principles that 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 reverse the losses of atmosphere the, the it, it fixes the bone ratio issues right the, the issues related to the volumes of sensible and latent heat created over land if we've got a lot of moisture in the in the landscape we can ensure that we're going to draw atmospheric water in off the oceans that way we're compensating for our losses in the hydrological cycle otherwise we're locked into export and debit from our continents right the biotic pump principle basically shows us how to reverse it. Yeah, what we see going on at the moment is the 
paradigm of drainage has created this situation where we're exporting everything. The biotic principle more or less gives us the scientific background to understand how to how to get it back again. And it's lower and a combination of the biotic pump and Michael Kravick's work that supports um, it supports the need to rehydrate landscapes that are yeah I just want to just explain what the biotic pump is here. So the biotic pump is where um, over forest like there's enough evapotranspiration and then it condenses into a cloud. And as the cloud condenses, the it's a hypo the hypotic pump is a hypothesis that that cloud will create a sucking effect. So it'll actually create wind and it'll draw moisture towards the forest uh, to create the rain. So that's the biotic pump theory. The basically yeah. condensation of water vapor into a cloud actually is what's creating the wind. And so forests are actually creating wind. We usually think that the winds blow water vapor to the forest. And so these two Russian physicists, Makareva and Gorshov, I think his name or something, um, uh, came up with this theory that actually forests can be creating the wind that brings in the, the water vapor. Well, they were trying to explain why it was that when the average rainfall on the coastline and the, or the point of origins where the rains came from, it's say sort of four to 600 millimetres a year, why was it that in, in the centre of the continent that they were getting sort of 1,200 millimetres? They were trying to compensate for the increases in volumes of water in, in further away from the point of origin of the yeah. They were adding up the contribution of the short water cycle where it was actually the forest feeding the rain system that, that continued to generate the precipitation as it moved inland. The forest, the, the component of the plants were responsible for. And as soon as, as soon as the heat dynamics change, the rain stops. That's... Yeah, so, so what they did was they looked at like certain like usually in a lot of places on earth when you go you draw a line from the coast inland and you see that the rainfall exponentially decreases but in certain places um like in south america near the amazon and then in, in near the as you go inland to the congo where there's rainforest the, the 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 rain doesn't decrease exponentially it actually stays the same or even increases slightly and so um and, and other areas too so it seems like the forest have a have have an impact on how far the rain goes inland, and so, and one of the possible mechanisms for this that they're proposing as a biotic pump is that the forests are actually helping bring that rain further inland. When you when you said small increases a moment ago, that's not quite right because you know that they're actually very significant increases. You know, from four to six hundred mil to twelve hundred millimeters. Eh? is uh, increases 600 millimeters a year precipitation. It's not a small increase. Okay. Another area where they had very low atmospheric, like where there was actually very low, um, a lack a lack of original precipitation, the forest actually created its own. You know, like the, the point of art, they, they weren't getting as high a volume as like um, for the 400 to start with off the coastline or other regions of the earth where they, they were getting moisture from not from coastlines just out of the atmosphere itself into a forest and the volumes increased up to sort of four to the 600 area you know right so th this capacity to harvest atmospheric moisture you know to understand the dynamics around how to work with it 
it's basically governed this lower atmosphere seeding of the lower atmosphere with water vapor is an important part that makes it all work so if we're going to drain things and remove water so quickly we can never we, the only way to to this is why we advocate for a reversal of the drainage paradigm is because the only way to, to actually ensure that we're not exporting everything and moisture and soil to the atmosphere and the oceans is, is actually by slowing down and, and recreating these circumstances where all of that energy is being processed over land rather than over the oceans. Yeah. So, so the whole wind is, is quite an important, you know, and wind carries water vapor is, is a very important thing. And it's like not fully understand the whole causes and, you know, and how it all moves. And, but it's, it's such an important wind. part of that kind of atmospheric aqueduct, basically. Um, I, I was reading what, some research. Wind is what you experience. Wind is what you experience as the result of energy transfers. It's just right. You know, or a wave is what you see as a result of energy. You know, it's just all of wind. To throw another piece, yeah, into this whole equation. Like Francina Dominguez is a is a climate hydroclimatologist um, from Columbia, but now working in uh, I think University of Illinois. And she studied. Um, she did these computer global climate models of the atmospheric uh, flow of the water in the South America. And so as they, in a model, she took down some of the forests and replaced them with, you know, agriculture and crops. And what happened was that it actually lower the, the, she found that the rain would blow off the continent more without creating the rain because um, the forests actually played a role in slowing down the wind and actually creating the rain. And so that, that's another effect that forests also are helpful for that they, um, well, they actually slow down the air. A standing tree is, again, an energy dissipative structure in the same way that it does with wind energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, an, it's, all, it's all dissipation. Uh, I need to put, um, put another layer of clothes on. It started with the sun's sort of... Um, but funnily enough, I've got some with me, so if I, I'm just putting some um, warmer things on as we talk. Still there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. So just to kind of yeah say there's there's a there's an interesting framework to view the whole water cycle is through heat and how energy is dissipated and also through these uh, these pergogenes dissipative structures and, um, and and I wonder what do you think of the idea of thinking of the small water cycle as a certain kind of dissipative structure that forms like so dissipative structures are basically patterns that the system likes to form and so. I mean, we could consider the small water cycle as a kind of dissipative structure. Well, it is. Yeah. Um, this, this small water cycle is, um, you know, it's, take, it's taking the heat of the day and dissipating it and re-releasing it sort of at night time. It's sort of all happening um, in a localised microclimate, you know, Right. And so, yeah, so then if we think of it, because uh, just from the whole framework to re review a little bit, the, the phases, right, in equilibrium uh, thermodynamics, you have like water as liquid, gas or solid. But in, in non-equilibrium dynamics, you actually have these different types of phases, which are these dissipative structures, which are patterns that the whole system forms that are not in equilibrium. And so 
so in on Earth, we can form these energy dissipated structures that are certain patterns like hurricanes, but the small water cycle could also be considered as a type of pattern that forms. And so in order to get those small water cycle going, you actually need, you know, the soil to be in a healthy state and a certain amounts of, you know, vegetation to evapotranspire the thing. So you now, could imagine that the system does these phase changes from where as the whole system desertifies and degrades, it phase transitions to a different state where there's a lot less small water cycle. And, and then as you increase the soil quality and the amount of evapotranspiration from plants, it can phase change again back into the in dissipated structure. So there's a way to kind of create these phase diagrams of the whole system um, to view it through more the physics phase transition uh, picture. Well, yeah, I think if I think if you can if you can use those um, physics principles to um, yeah explain what's going on around you, I think it's. Um, so, yeah, so there's kind of these things, phase diagrams. So for instance, you could put water like two axes, a temperature and a pressure, and at each temperature and pressure, the water is in a certain phase. And so as you shift the temperature and pressure, it shifts to another phase. And so I think it's interesting if we could create almost like a uh, phase diagram. So, uh, you know, it, it, as the system switches to different biomes or different patterns, it actually also phase transitions the water cycles. And so... Uh, that would be an interesting kind of map, you know, like to give us a kind of map of the whole water cycle and how it interrelates with different biomes. Cool. Well, maybe this is a good place to end. Um, yeah. Mm. So, so, yeah, so guess, thank you very much. Oh, you, you want to say something else? No, no, you're welcome. Uh, look, that, uh, in, in some ways, it was, it was a kind a bit sort of um, erratic and jumping around, but in nature, everything's connected, you know? So it's sort of, if you yank hard enough on the thread, more and more of the story comes out sort of thing. At the moment, we're just getting to know and we're like, but if we keep exploring this a little bit and get more and more familiar with each other a little bit and tease it out, I think there's some, there's a lots of actual gems in there that, um, uh, you know, it can't just be another thing we look over some of those things. Right. They, yeah, I think there's, you know, we, we did cover a lot of different grounds. So for the readers, the listeners listening in, like, I think it, it's useful to kind of actually listen to it um, several times and also maybe do your own little research on some of this stuff to kind of put together the pieces. Hmm. All right, mate. Thank you very much. And we should talk again sometime. Okay, cool. All right. Thank you. I enjoyed that. <laughs>